Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I am your host, Duncan McPherson. And on this podcast, our objective is to enable our listeners, which are working high caliber fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves personally and professionally. And on today's podcast, I had a great conversation with Katie Bruner. I've known Katie for many years. She is the managing partner at Skyview Partners. And in this episode, we talked about many of the uh, essential salient issues around buying, selling, or expanding a financial services practice. And a big driver of that, of course, is financing those acquisitions. So if you like this podcast, please like and share and share it with your colleagues. And if you have any ideas uh, for topics that you'd like to hear on this podcast down the road, just let us know. Okay, so thanks for listening. Okay, very excited to have this conversation with Katie Bruner, who is the managing partner at Skyview, is an absolute authority in enabling financial professionals to make very wise acquisitions and among her many talents, how to fund those acquisitions. Katie, I've known you forever and you're a legend in the industry, so well respected. <laughs> I, I mean that. You're really pouring it on thick this morning, Duncan, but I'll take it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So we're going to have a conversation and and draw some information from your resources and ours and put together an acquisition checklist. And it'll actually go beyond that because anybody who's thinking about acquiring a business or even selling a business or just how to cross the Rubicon from organic growth to scalable growth in whatever form that takes on for the individual advisor, we're going to get into some content here in this chat. And then we're going to make some deeper dive resources available so that nobody's left to their own devices to figure things out or try to reinvent the wheel. So first of all, right up front, thank you for joining us. I know you're very busy. You come to us from California, but your office is in Minnesota. How's that accent coming? Are you developing the Minnesota accent? It's not coming along very well, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm a California girl through and through, born and raised here. So I'm not sure you can you can kick that out of me. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I just love uh I, I I Michigan, Minnesota, and some of those bordering states are as close to Canada spiritually and physically as, as it'll ever get. Hockey, of course, but just of course. quality people, right? Yes, it's great. I, I I love visiting Minnesota, and it's a wonderful place to be. It's a fun place to have our office, and it's a great, uh, great urban uh, urban atmosphere. But uh, not really wanting to live there in January and February. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You must have loved when Zoom came along, and you're like, oh, okay, that's this works. This works. <laughs> <laughs> I can see uh, through your uh, French doors there uh, what looks to be a pretty awesome Zen setting back there. So I'm assuming a couple of conference calls have happened uh, out there. Maybe one or two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you and I met, I think you were saying 17 years ago, 2005, and you were wholesaling 
And I think if I remember correctly, you pointed out that you liked our philosophy and our approach because it was trying to prompt financial professionals to look beyond their technical ability, not just as wealth managers, but as business owners and CEOs. So, so is that what really resonated with you early on? It, absolutely. Duncan, you know, 15, 17 years ago when we met, I don't think financial planners had the mindset of being business owners. You know, they would show up at their office, they would work with their clients, they'd show their clients their portfolios, their performance. Hey, how am I doing? And and that was really the the extent of their their discussions. This whole concept of holistic financial planning and building an actual enterprise around what they were doing was really non-existent. And you and and your process and philosophy really brought that to the forefront of the conversation, which was was really unique at the time. And I think that you guys have also evolved to still remain unique in, in what you're offering us for advisors. And it's been really fun to work with some of your advisors and actually see how it's implemented and how it impacts the bottom line of the, the businesses and the, the enterprises that they're building. You know, it's interesting. I'm having a bit of a flashback because way back when, like I was telling financial professionals, like it's not a book of business, it's a business. And, you know, like don't call your assistant a sales assistant. He or she is a client service associate. Uh Like the words matter and the positioning matters. And you fast forward to today, you know, you've maintained many great relationships in the business. And I often talk to people who I've known going way back when, and I look at them today versus where they were when I met with them. And I I love to remind them, I said, look at what you've done. I mean, you've you've taken your business and it's 10 times what what it was 15 years ago. And in those 15 years, it's not as if you all of a sudden became a better financial professional. Like you've always been good. But the decision they make is that I'm not going to rest on my core competency. I'm going to build on it and focus more on the client experience, focus more on being process-driven to create consistency. And of course, all of that contributes to intellectual property and enterprise value. So you must be having a great time because I know you have an entrepreneurial mindset as well, but now you get to work with entrepreneurs who are focusing on how they can maximize on their life's work and how they can unlock another level of productivity, efficiency, and value. So I'm I'm assuming you're having a great time in your role. I'm having a great time. It's It's been really fun to step away from some more of the transactional work that I was doing before and really doing work now where you're creating relationships and and deeper relationships with these advisors and and really offering them expertise and insight that's life-changing for them as they build these build these enterprises. And and to that point, <clears throat> it's not just that it's directional instead of transactional, but it's also your value now, along with your team, is experiential. You're crowdsourcing so many proven strategies 
that you can't develop in a simulator. Uh, they're not theoretical. They're real. And you actually pointed something out to me last time we talked, which was to me quite profound. Because you know how everybody says there's more buyers than sellers. And to <laughs> me, that's just an opportunity to create professional contrast. But I think if I remember correctly, the point you made to me is a lot of people think, okay, there's 50 buyers for every seller. But you pointed out there's really, I think, only five or six or seven qualified buyers. So it's that's a, a huge distinction. It's a really important distinction. There's different numbers that are thrown out from various sources in the industry. The one thing that I would say is we just know there are a lot of buyers for every seller or a lot of advisors that think that they are buyers and are and are you know able to do these transactions. When it comes down to it though, when we actually vet out those buyers that are qualified to make the transaction and not just financially qualified, but have the platform and the process and the technology to absorb these businesses, the number becomes exponentially smaller. I'll give you a good example, Duncan. We have a we have a marketplace called the Advisory Practice Board of Exchange. And when and when we list a practice on there, we get anywhere from probably 40 to 60, even upwards of 70 indications of interest of buyers that want to buy the practice. And, you know, they say, oh, this looks great and I want to buy it. We spend an, a very large amount of time vetting all these buyers. And one of the reasons why we landed on that smaller number is because we know from doing our own due diligence that that number shrinks down significantly to around about a half a dozen, maybe on the high end, 10 or so buyers that are really qualified to, uh, to purchase those practices. So we've seen it in, you know, in reality through, through this exchange that we have. Um, and so we know, we know that to be the case. It's, you know, a lot of advisors want to be buyers, but they're simply not prepared or they're not ready or they're not in the right position. And just so that um, I'm clear, what is that exchange called again? That's like a marketplace, like a, a listing board? It's, an, it's a neutral marketplace. It's called the Advisory Practice Board of Exchange, or as we fondly call it, <laughs> APBO. Um, and it's, it's a neutral marketplace where sellers can list their practices. Um, but it's different. You know, it's, it has some unique nuances to it that differentiate it from other quote-unquote listing boards. Every seller on the website is, is represented by an M&A consultant. Mm. So there's representation there. Also, buyers can indicate interest in sellers, but they cannot contact the sellers. The seller is in control and gets to decide with the help of their M&A consultant and after a vetting process, they decide which buyers they want to talk to. So it's, uh, it remains for a seller. It gives them a high level of confidentiality that they're not going to be bombarded with buyers who aren't qualified and aren't able to buy their practice. However, it gives them a list of buyers that we can vet and go through due diligence on and then decide who the seller wants to talk to. So it's a much um, a much more stringent process to go through so that sellers aren't wasting their time with buyers that really ultimately can't acquire their practice. Okay, so let's drill down into that. So you made a very powerful statement, and if I in, in heard it correctly, so it's not just someone's financial ability to acquire a business, 
that qualification goes deeper than that in your view. Did I hear that properly? Oh, absolutely. There's several financial factors and non-financial factors that go into it. And you know, some of them can be very simple. Maybe the match isn't there because there are certain you know, custodial requirements or broker dealer requirements. Those are just kind of the check the box things. Right. Um, but beyond the financial factors, there's other things that that we look for or that any MA consultant would look for as far as what would be a good buyer or a good match for a seller. I'll give you a couple examples. Things, um, things for example, such as platform process technology does does the buyer have the capability to absorb this practice and their clients and potentially their staff and do they have the process and the team in place to make that integration as seamless as possible not only for the clients but also for the team that could potentially remain and the staff that could remain. What does that transition look like? What does that integration look like? And typically buyers, and you can relate to this, this is what you guys do all day, all, all day long. And it's really exciting to, to work with folks that you work with because they already have that those processes in place and it makes those integrations and those mergers and acquisitions so much easier. To position yourself as a subject matter expert while efficiently creating professional contrast in the eyes of your prospective clients, strategic partners, and ideal clients, deploy a podcasting initiative using the turnkey process developed by Proudmouth. Learn more at Proudmouth.com. The best place to strengthen a client relationship is in the very place where you manage that relationship. BlueSquareToolkit.com has harnessed the best practices of Pareto systems and brought them to life in our easy to use system that is accessible on both your phone and your desktop. Simple technology to uncomplicate your life by creating clarity, accountability, and consistency for your entire team. Build stronger client relationships by tracking and archiving essential information on what matters in your client's life and make yourself indispensable and more referable in the process. Create a more consistent client experience and grow your business with the Blue Square Toolkit. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. Okay, so I want to drill down into that further in terms of demystifying for somebody what they have to consider beyond just their financial ability in the spirit that good decisions stem from strong, enlightened, informed positions. So uh, it's all about preparation, yes. doing what's right for the advisor, doing what's right for the clients, and and just minimizing 
the hassle factor and the unpleasant surprises on the other end. So, but, but I want to jump back to something while I'm thinking about it. As we sort of head into Q4 here, the noise, the disruptions, volatility, uncertainty, apprehension, is that prompting people who are sort of thinking maybe I'm three to five years out from selling? Is that speeding them up? Is it adding urgency to the desire to maybe have this liquidity event as a seller? I think that's typically what we see. Typically, advisors that might be three to five years out when we go through periods of volatility in the market or we go through you know, events such as COVID, for example, typically that can accelerate some advisors' timelines to come to market and say, well, I thought I was going to maybe work another three to five years, but I can't go through this again. I can't make those calls to my clients again to you know, explain what's going on in the market and, and, and play, play defense like that. Uh, anymore. So, you know, quite oftentimes that does accelerate bringing sellers to market. I'll say from our end, we certainly haven't seen any slowdown of M&A activity this year. It's stabilized a little bit in the in the first quarter, but we're still on pace to see some record M&A activity this year. And so that would that would definitely be some evidence to the fact that sellers are still coming to market and accelerating their timelines. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, who knows what that looks like in the next 12 to 18 months, right? And of course, cost of capital will be a factor in that as well. I'm Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. But if you have a crystal ball and can tell me, I would love to know. <laughs> I predict uncertainty. How's that? <laughs> well, and here's what's interesting to me, because all of these external forces are so revealing and I, I can have on the same day two polar opposite conversations with advisors who both have a business of, let's say, $300 million AUM. One would say, I'm having the time of my life. It's so fulfilling, so rewarding, never been busier. The fish are jumping in the boat. This is why I became a financial advisor is to help people see past the apprehension and the noise. And then on the other side, you can have this, the, this conversation with an advisor who's just filled with dread and they just seem so demoralized and, and beaten up and uncertain. And I think a big part of it has to do with like, is this your calling? Is this a big part of your purpose? Or is it a job? I think that's what volatility reveals, among other things. I, I agree. I, I would agree with that. I mean, you have advisors out there, and one is not bad or good, but you have advisors out there that are really in it for a lifestyle practice. And then you have advisors out there that are building a business and building an enterprise. I think one of the biggest differences as we go through volatility is, do you have a process and a platform and have you built a business founded on process that will take you through good times and bad times, no matter what the market's doing? I think the advisors that are more comfortable going through volatile markets are advisors that have a process, a team, and a platform in place 
that gives them the comfort of knowing that they can get through that volatility much easier. And I think that's what what you're helping advisors build and recognize. Yeah, I I completely agree. And just being enlightened, like that old chestnut that says, uh, calm seas never produced a skilled sailor, right? I mean, we had a really nice run, a few hiccups here and there, but the last 12 or 13 years was, I mean, you look at the charts, it's like, wow, that was actually not too bad. But now here we are. So I think okay, with volatility so- though, Duncan, with volatility, the other thing that you get is you get a lot of clients that are moving. So my guess is that advisor that you were talking to who was having a lot of fun saying, this is a good time for me is probably probably picking up some good good business during this time as well. There's volatility brings brings movement with clients. And there are advisors out there where if they have the right team and the right process in place, they're they're picking those clients up. Absolutely. And it sparks conversations, right? Between a client and a friend or a family member where there's so many things swirling around that create this referable moment where a friend says, you know, I, I've, I've been tolerating my financial advisor for the last couple of years. I just never got around to making a move, but now, you know, he's kind of hiding uh, not returning my calls as quickly as he should. And so are you happy with your financial advisor? Like it just creates these opportunities. So again, very revealing, but yes. yeah, exactly. And if they're so, having those conversations with somebody who is happy with their financial advisor and is, you know, an advocate of their advisor, they're going to say, let me talk to that person. I want to talk to that person. You know, it's, yeah. it's so the conversation, you're right. It creates that conversation and that conversation can be very, uh, be very meaningful for certain advisors to grow. their. And business. those with the sense of purpose, they position that as a value added service they're providing to the client, not pitching it as a opportunistic idea in terms of, Hey, help me grow my business. Right. Uh, they, they're not pitching it as a favor. They're asking of someone they're positioning as a service they're providing for someone because they love what they do. So with that, let's get to the checklist. Let's talk about some of the things that a buyer needs to get way out in front of to to be really qualified from a position of strength beyond just the financial aspect, but just panoramically. What are the, some of the things that come to mind that, that give someone the credibility and the predisposition and a position of strength? So the first thing that I would say, Duncan, is, you know, we were talking earlier about the the large number of buyers that, you know, are purportedly out there for, for every seller. Qualified buyers win deals. It's a fact. Say so that again. First thing, qualified buyers win deals. And what I mean by that, you know, one of the first things that a buyer should do is they should really know their purchasing power. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is we have a we have a platform that advisors can use. It's on the advisory practice board of exchange. It's called purchasing power. But what it does is it helps a buyer understand how ready they are to acquire from a credit worthiness perspective. It's really important that an advisor understands how much financing their business can qualify for. 
I'll give you an example. You know, on we we will get we'll talk to advisors who may have let's just call it a hundred million in assets, and they'll come to us and they'll say, "I need ten million dollars in financing to buy a four hundred million dollar book of business," and we're going, oh, "Okay, uh, that's not going to work." <laughs> So it's really important that these that these advisors are going after the right acquisition targets, the right size acquisition targets. And so if you know your purchasing power and you know how much financing your business can qualify for, then you know what kind of practices are your acquisition targets and which types of practices that you're actually able to successfully acquire. In addition to that, if you go through the purchasing power platform, you'll know what you're not ready for. And we have folks that can, you know, consult with you to help you prepare better. But there are certain things when you look at bank financing that our banks will look at that are really important for advisors to have all their ducks in a row um, and ready to go when they're when they are looking to qualify for financing to acquire a practice. So first and foremost, I would say understand bank financing and understand how much you can qualify for so that you know your acquisition targets. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm curious, and I'm probably jumping way ahead here, but I'm just curious, does the bedside manner of the buyer play a role in creating professional contrast? Like, let's just say you're the seller and I'm the buyer and we're we're connecting for the first time and you're comparing and contrasting me. If I show an, a, a, an authentic interest in what matters to you and what you're trying to accomplish, not just in negotiating the financial terms, but you know, working through these parameters, like we, we frame it this way, Katie, we say, understand what the seller wants. And generally they want liberation, they want their legacy to be secured, which means they want their clients to be in good hands. Right. And of course, they want that liquidity event and they want that, they want to get that right. But does the bedside manner of focusing on the first two, not just the third, does that add to the attractiveness of the buyer in your view? Absolutely. I do think they're all three connected, though, because in some sense, Imagine, you know, you have to make sure that you can like someone a lot and they can understand what you want. And if those two pieces are there, that's fantastic. And that would put a buyer in a, in a really good position to acquire practice. But they also have to have the financial veracity to do it. <laughs> so they're, they're connected. But what I will say, Duncan, you know, one of the most important things is buyers really do need to listen. Listen to sellers and listen to what's important to them. You know, many buyers will come in and they'll say, I've got this to offer, I've got this to offer, and it's it's what they have and what they have. But if they don't really understand what a seller's goals and objectives are, then it doesn't necessarily put them in the best position to be acquiring that acquiring that practice. And sometimes, you know, for example, when we work with sellers, a good portion of our job is helping 
convey and mediate between those two groups and helping the buyer understand what the seller's objectives are and then coming up with a game plan as to how a buyer can convey how they will help the seller achieve those objectives. But I think mm. listening for a buyer is a very, very key, key point when it comes to acquiring. So if, if I look at the cycle, so there's intent, that's the fit process. Are our interests aligned? So there's intent. Then there's consent. We come to an agreement. And then there's implement. And the, the predictability of the transaction, but also to your point about process, future pacing for the seller, what it looks like for him or her and his or her team and his or her clients. Once the dust settles and we start to make that move and start to transition and you know how built out this is, how well thought out and how well executed it would be. Do, do you also put an emphasis on that progression, intent, consent, implement? Absolutely. And I would add one more thing actually on the forefront, which just, again, is because of our background and what we do. And to your point about listening to the seller and understanding their objectives and, and all those points, we look at the financing aspect actually on the front end, not the back end. So mm -hmm. we'll look at that first and foremost so that sellers are not speaking to any buyers or not getting introduced to any buyers or not quote unquote falling in love with any buyers <laughs> who can't financially buy the practice or acquire the practice. So we take all that stuff and then we say, okay, here are your best candidates. And don't worry, you can pick any one of these, whoever you fall in love with, great, because all of them can do the can do the transaction. But you're absolutely correct in the fact that it is, you know, intent, consent, and implementation. And uh, you know, it's the implementation is really key as well who of these buyers can implement. And that goes back to what I mentioned earlier in the podcast around having the processes and the platform and the people to make that implementation as smooth and seamless as possible for the seller, their clients, and their staff. Yeah. I mean, they're all of significant importance. So as part of your process and your checklist, do you provide some of the questions to be diagnostic up front in the implement, like the, sorry, in the intent phase, the fit process to help people come to their own conclusions so that it's not a a sales encounter. It really is a pure alignment of interest. Do you, is that all intellectual property you guys possess? It is. And, and that is, that is all part of the resources that we have, you know, when we're working with, with folks is that we are, we are providing that, that guidance around those conversations. What do you ask on the first call? What do you ask on the second call? Uh, what do you ask on the third call? It really is the way that we've constructed uh, our buyer pool, we construct such a wide and deep buyer pool. And obviously we're doing a lot of due diligence to, to weed those people out. But once you get down to the few that are real 
viable, qualified candidates, you have to have a process in place of what to ask, when to ask, to really come to the conclusion of the right match. It's, it's a matchmaking process. Well, and there's interesting parallels between the B to C and the B to B. Like the, uh-huh. the, I've spent 25 plus years with financial professionals making sure that the value is bought, not sold. You're not convincing someone to become a client. They're coming to their own conclusions. So there's an agenda. There's no hidden agenda. It's transparent. It's forthright. And it's a refreshing departure from what they think is going to happen. It's not salesmanship, it's stewardship between a financial professional and a prospective client. And then the expectation set, there'll be a very nice, consistent, clearly laid out client experience. Well, you're basically describing the same thing on a B2B between an advisor and somebody who's thinking about this emotional decision, not to mention practical, around selling their life's work. So just being able to convey to somebody that, look, we're not going to wing it. We've got a process in play that right. place. It's all built out. And we're going to put a big emphasis on what matters to you and what you're trying to accomplish. Right. So, so, so help me. More, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. What's even more important too, is that that client experience that the buyer brings to the table is better than what the seller currently has. Every seller, you know, every seller has or every financial advisor thinks they have a client experience or a client process in place, right? I mean, you yeah. probably see this all the time. Uh, some are some are better than others. <laughs> but sellers always want, whether they think they have the best process or not, sellers always want their clients and their staff to end up in a better place post-transaction than where they were before. Hey, Katie, I just want to chime in because your point about advisors assuming that they have a good client experience, I mean, that's all relative, right? As compared to what? It's interesting. And and whether or not the bar is low is secondary. What's, What's a very important distinction there is I remind teams that, look, Client service is an intention and it speaks to how you react to an issue that comes up. It says, okay, I, I have a professional code of conduct and it's it's beyond putting out fires. Like I have a sense of urgency. I see things through the team's bought in. We're dependable. We react. That's client service. Client experience is thought out. It's documented. It doesn't reside in someone's head. Uh It's scheduled. It's proprietary. And that's, that's the whole always on. Like always working on your business means you have an on-site fit process, all determined, an onboarding process, an ongoing service model, and an onwards as a goals and needs-based planner, you pay tribute to events that occur in your client's life. And all of that is client-facing and it's proprietary and actually adds to the enterprise value because it is a process. So that's a big distinction. And like your purchasing power uh, solution, does it take into consideration some of that, those aspects of 
best practices, client experience, and intellectual properties? Does that factor some of that into the mix? So while it doesn't, because purchasing power is focused on the financial capabilities of uh, an advisor, I will say that from an M&A standpoint on, on the investment banking side for Skyview, it's a huge focus when we are doing our buyer diligence and finding, you know, finding qualified best fit buyers for our sellers. A lot of our sellers, Duncan, that we talk to, we ask them about their client service model. And it's, well, we don't really have one. <laughs> okay, do you segment your clients? Do you how often do you see them? You know, well, whenever they call or they want to or they pop into the office. <laughs> Um, and we certainly have, that's not all of our sellers, so I don't want to say that, but it's, it's quite a, quite a large number of the potential clients that we, we talk to. And one of the things though, when a, when a seller is looking to exit the business or create their succession plan is that they always want to find a buyer who's going to provide a higher level of client service a better client experience than what they're currently providing them. That conversation when they transition and tell their clients, I've created a succession plan and this is who I'm merging with, or this is going to be my new partner, goes so much better. Retention is higher. Clients are happier when they can say, you are going to get all of this and this is going to be your experience going forward. And this is the client experience you're going to have. Clients get really excited about that. It takes a lot of fear away from that transition of their advisor eventually sunsetting out and being part of this new firm. It takes so much fear away for clients to be able to see and experience a higher level of service and interaction with the firm. It's really key. It's it's something that is really important for us when we look for buyers is do you have that client experience in place and, and do you have a process and, and do you have it written down? Do you, um, are you sticking to that process? It's, it's really important. It's another very important characteristic that can set a buyer apart from the rest of the pool. And and to your point, very rejuvenational. And it's not like you're acknowledging that it's been flawed up until now. Correct. Correct. Uh, but what's interesting about your points there is that I love working with teams on the messaging, the client facing messaging, the positioning. It's not pitching, it's positioning. positioning. And what's powerful about what you were saying is sitting down with a client and saying, you know, we're lifelong planners. And we've noticed, obviously, over the last couple of years, especially an acceleration where clients are getting out in front of their own continuity and succession and family investment legacy issues and all of those dynastic elements and our view is in order for us to be relevant to our clients' issues, we have to address our own in real time. And so what we've done after a significant exhausted, exhaustive period of due diligence, we've actually identified an opportunity where we can elevate the client experience by 
transitioning and joining forces with this other entity. And I, we're so excited about this because uh-huh. we're we're getting out in front of your evolving needs. Like the point is, it's all client-centered. It's not a transaction. It's not like it can be interpreted like, I'm selling my business. You're an asset. Thank you very much. I get to monetize. It's, I care about what I do and I'm, I'm really caring about my clients. And uh, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you on that, when the dust settles in a transaction, do you see that there are some sellers that build into this, that they want to be retained as a consultant or stay for a period of time? Is that emerging as well? Absolutely. I would say that it has emerged. That is one of the most common transaction types we're seeing and working with today. And I'll give you a good example. There are advisors that are in their mid-50s who aren't quite ready to turn off the lights and close the door, but they want to experience a liquidity event, take some chips off the table, diversify their own portfolio, but they still want to work with the firm and they want to do the things that they like. They might be a rainmaker and they really want to go Mm -hmm. out and bring in new business and, and do business development. And they might have some other type of consulting skill around 401k or real estate or whatever that might be, but they don't want to be done working. And so it becomes even more important for a buyer in that situation to come in with a process and an experience that the seller can get on board with and is excited to integrate with and sees the possibility, not only for their clients and their staff, but for themselves to remain with the practice. We're we're seeing that all the time now. And fortunately, we have financing structures and capital vehicles in place that can support that and allow advisors to do that, that they now have the optionality to do that, which is been fairly, you know, of recent for them, for them to do that. You know, it's fascinating on that. When I do a gap analysis and strategic planning with somebody who's trying to get clear on what the next five years looks like and how to engineer Nirvana for themselves, Uh there have been times where I've said to them to get their attention and to jar them. I've said, you should get out of the wealth management business. And they're like, what? What are you what are you talking about? I said, and I'd say to them, I say, you manage money, you manage a business, and you manage people. And it sounds to me, based on this conversation, what you really like doing is working with people. Mm-hmm. So why don't you, in the spirit of outsourcing, outsource the business management, outsource the asset management? Because you know, honestly, you don't have scale. And you don't even really like it. And liberate yourself to do what you love to do. So to your point about the sell and stay, mm-hmm. and for the buyer, the continuity of that transition. And we've had many that have framed it where as part of the position to clients, they're saying, like the, the selling advisor says, I'm being retained as a consultant and I'm becoming a client mm-hmm. of this new entity myself. Because I'm so thrilled at how seriously they take this. And so so it just creates this concept of belonging. And there's a force multiplier in that where 
Now the buyer's got this great asset. And of course, all those terms get defined. But I, I wanted to come back to this. So Skyview, in a nutshell, you don't just source out the capital. So, so you are efe- efficiently or effectively rather that matchmaker. You match the funding with the buyer to give them that position of strength and that that credibility and qualification to go out and buy. That's part of what you do, but it goes so much deeper than that. Correct. Yes, correct. I mean, we do have you know Skyview financing, and we we are that is our core business. But we do also on a separate side on Skyview Investment Banking offer M and A services as well. So full sell side representation, where we are representing sellers, advocating for sellers in that process through the investment banking process. So we do have both both sides of the shop. Exactly. Okay, so if I'm thinking about the next 12, 18, 36 months, and I want to start kicking the tires of Skyview, is purchasing power my first step to pop the hood and understand what it looks like to work with you? Correct. I mean, that could that could be the first step. If 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 a buyer's out there and really just wants to wants to know again, how capable and ready they are to make a potential acquisition. Purchasing power is a great, great place to start. If you, if a buyer is out there and they actually have a deal in place and they have, a, you know, they ha- they have a seller that they're working with that maybe they've either had conversations with, or they've even gone as far to sign a letter of intent with, then the best way to engage with Skyview is to simply pre-approve on our website and get that pre-approval mm. and start working with someone from our team who can help them look at deal structure and and the bank financing and how all those pieces tie together and uh, what, how, again how much financing they could qualify for and and you know how they may or may not need to structure the deal in order to uh, successfully achieve that bank financing. And what I'll offer as a bookend to that is our practice management index, which is a self guided assessment of where someone stands and where someone's gaps are, whether you're a buyer or a seller, if you're looking to become franchise ready and scale your business. uh, I think between purchasing power at Skyview and the practice management index with us, and by the way, the PMI, the practice management index is about a two-hour investment of effort. It's an exercise that forces you to get everything out of your head And the best part is the depth of the reporting, which is staggering, and you'll get a number. You'll get a reading on where you stand and, more importantly, gaps that you need to address over a specific window of time. So I'll include that. So if somebody wants to get to know Skyview and purchasing power and and go deeper into the Skyview experience, again, to strengthen your position, will include the practice management index and whether you're a buyer or a seller or striving to become franchise ready or to scale your business by attracting other advisors to draft in behind your process you'll you'll come at it from a position of strength so that's the call to action for everybody and katie i mean just always a pleasure having interactions with you you take this so seriously you're a serious student of personal and professional development. 
And I'm looking forward to crossing paths with you guys, uh, hopefully sooner than later. But uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you again, Duncan, for having me today. It's been a pleasure talking with you as always. And and I will just say, you know, we have had the experience of working with some of the clients who have implemented your processes and procedures, and they are top-notch advisors building a true enterprise. And so hats off to you and your team for what you're doing as well. Well, and likewise, the advisors that we know that have had interactions with Skyview have had their expectations dramatically exceeded. I think going in, they thought that, okay, you'll help them secure financing, but you bring out a level of uh, entrepreneurship in these people to make great decisions. And again, it's not just that you are strong in your technical ability. You have a process in place which adds so much predictability to outcomes. So right back at you. I know we're going to do this again. What I'd like to do in the future, Katie, is I'd like to have a conversation around a case study. Yes. Around start to finish, what it looked like. And, And the ones I like the most about these case studies are the ones that go into it fixated on one acquisition And when the dust clears, they realize, okay, that exercise is now a proof of concept and an intellectual property in and of itself. I can now go and do it again. I want to have that conversation sooner than later, okay? I think that would be great. That sounds like a great follow-up and happy to do it. Thanks for having me today. Likewise. Thank you for being here and we'll talk to you real soon. for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit proudmouth.com to learn more.